Thank you, Don. I saw that. When you walked up, you have your mouthpiece in. I thought, oh, you'll figure that out <laughs> sooner or later. <laughs> John chapter 6 is where we are today. And as you're, you're turning there, I, I just want to share with you something that happened last weekend. Judy and I were at the, the wedding of a, a, the daughter of a friend of ours up in Nashville, and uh, he was the pastor, so he walked her down the aisle, and then he turned and, and did the service, and I was kind of there if uh, he fell apart. I was the kind of the pastor in waiting, but he, he held it together. He only choked up a couple of times uh, during the service, but what was really interesting was right towards the end of the service, he invited everybody to come forward and, and lay hands on the bride and groom. And, and pray the Lord's blessing upon them. And that was the first time that I'd ever seen that in, in a service. And, and I thought it was really neat. And, and so probably there were 150 people there, and 100 of us went up, and we're all kind of gathered around the, the bride and the groom. And, and then he, he opened the door and said, and anybody who would like to pray, just, just uh, something very brief, uh, go ahead. And there were a dozen or so people that prayed. And, and, and I just thought that that was... the very, very neat thing, and I'd never seen that in a wedding before, uh, so I thought uh, that that has, uh, uh, as somebody always ready to steal somebody else's ideas, uh, I thought that one has legs, that one has legs, okay? All right, John chapter 6, if you're able, would you stand with me as uh, I read the Word of God this morning? Heavenly Father, we pray that your Spirit would come down upon us and provide for us understanding and insight that we might see what you have for us today, and that we might live it out boldly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost." And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, for anybody who's spent any time in Sunday school or in church, the feeding of the 5,000 
is a, uh, what should we call it, a staple, okay, almost like Christmas. You know, when you come at Christmas, there are only a couple verses that we're really going to focus on because they deal with the birth of Christ. Well, if you've heard a sermon on the feeding of the 5,000, I mean, there are probably 20 things we could pull out of here in this passage because it is so rich. And, and today we're not going to focus upon uh, taking a little and making a lot with it or anything like that. We're going to go in, in a direction that, that I really didn't see until I, I spent a lot of time just reading this and reading this and reading this and, and, and until I, I saw this. So we're going to go first to Genesis 29. You don't have to turn there. But Genesis 29 and the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you understand that Jacob came to Laban and uh, said, oh, I'm in love with Rachel, but Rachel was the younger daughter. He said, oh, okay, work for me seven years and you can, you can marry her. So if he worked for seven years for Laban. And then uh, on the, the morning after the wedding, he looks over and by golly, who is there beside him but Leah? Uh, now, I don't know how that happens, okay? I don't know how it is you can go on your honeymoon with the wrong woman. Um, <laughs> And, 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 but, but, you know, I, those things, surprisingly, those things happen. Now, I did some research on this and found out that it usually happens with what we'll call mail-order brides, where somebody, I, I don't know how it works, I, I not mail-ordered a bride, um, somebody orders one and, and the wrong one shows up or something like that. Well, if, if this has ever happened, that people have married the wrong sibling, then they usually don't want to talk about it. Uh, I wouldn't. Um, but I did find somebody who did talk about it. Now, uh, I had to do some research on this and found out that it happened to a woman in Milwaukee in 1883. Okay? And this is the, the article about this woman marrying the wrong brother. Uh, the fact was briefly telegraphed from this city last night of one of the most peculiarly complicated cases of mistaken identity ever recorded, in which a lady married the twin brother of her fiancé, both men being so much alike it is almost an impossibility to tell one from the other. The developments today have been highly interesting, I would say highly interesting, on Wednesday last, a well-dressed, good-looking, and very intelligent young couple visited the office of Magistrate Benzler and requested him to marry them. The usual inquiries were made, which revealed the fact that the name of the would-be bride was Matilda Pope of Genesee, while the prospective groom said his name was William Conlon of Vernon. Miss Pope gave her age as 29, while Mr. Conlon informed the justice that he had just attained 21 years. The justice was a little suspicious that the would-be husband was not as old as he represented himself, but as he swore to that fact, and his statement was borne out by the vig vigorous protestations of his betrothed, he performed the ceremony, and the couple departed apparently very happy. Yesterday morning, Justice Benzler was somewhat surprised at receiving a visit from Mrs. Conlon, who was accompanied by her legal advisor, and who desired a separation from her husband. She wanted the justice to declare the marriage null and void and gave as her first reason for this strange request that her husband had committed perjury in swearing that he was 21 years old, as he had not yet re reached that age. The wrong age is not enough 
to nullify marriage, okay? Now, but you can imagine this, this woman, Miss, Miss Pope, coming to, back to the magistrate <clears throat> after, you know, a day or two saying, I, I, I think I want my marriage annulled. And the, says, why? Well, he lied about his age. Uh, that's not the real reason. The justice informed her that it was beyond his province to undo the work which he had performed, but recommended the young woman to judge Hamilton. Upon being pressed further as to the cause of this sudden revolution of her feelings toward her young husband, the lady admitted with sobs that she had married the wrong man. She said her husband was not the individual she had intended to marry, and that when the ceremony was performed, she was under the belief that she was marrying her husband's twin brother. Her legal advisor then informed the surprised justice that there are two brothers named Conlon, bearing such a close resemblance to each other that it was hardly possible for the relations to distinguish one from the other. Although these brothers are so much alike in person and feature, they are the reverse of each other in their characters. One of them being known and respected as a sober, industrious, and moral young man, while the other is said to be a dissipated scapegrace. Now, this is 1883, okay? A dissipated scapegrace. Miss Pope fixed her affections upon the moral brother, and when he asked her to marry him, she consented. At least she thought it was the respectable brother whom she accepted. But she has learned since that although her love was given to the good young man, she has been mainly courted and won by the bad young man. Mrs. Conlon thinks her position is an extremely unpleasant one, as she is not only married to a man she does not love, but is unable to tell her husband from his brother. She, she is of the opinion that this might lead to disagreeable complications. The lady and her attorney deemed the fact of the husband swearing falsely to his age good grounds for a divorce. She also expressed her objection to having a husband who was not of age and wished for a divorce in order to marry his twin brother. And the papers in the divorce were filed in the higher court later that day. Okay? From 1883, a woman marries the wrong twin. And you can just imagine... If, if this is correct in the description, you've got the, the uh, what was it called? Dissipated scapegrace brother, okay? And you've got the good brother. This is like, you know, the bad angel, the, the devil, and the angel sitting on the shoulders. And, and here's the bad twin and the good twin, and she likes the good twin, but the bad twin comes in and presents himself as the good twin and wins her affections. And you just imagine he's thinking this is all a great game, you know? But she's in love. Mm. How do you marry the wrong sibling? How do you fall in love with the wrong person? Now, perhaps you looked at your spouse of 15 years and said, you're not the person I married. Well, I hope not. I mean, the hope that they have changed over the last 15 years. Hopefully you have changed together. Now, I did one wedding, oh, years ago, back in uh, North Carolina. And uh, unfortunately... The marriage lasted just over a month, and I, I, I obviously have to take some blame for that. As the counselor, I did not see what, what manifested itself in their wedding. I didn't see it beforehand. Uh, it only took a month to manifest itself, but the flip side of that is the bride did not see it either. Uh, she and the husband went off and, and uh, were, were in what I thought wedded bliss until I got a call that said his anger is out of control and he's threatening me and we did some work and then a couple weeks later she just left because she couldn't take it. So none of us saw what was really in him. Now for her, 
Maybe she fell in love with, with a portion of him. Maybe she only fell in love with what she wanted to see about this young man and saw these characteristics and said, oh, I'm in love with these things and was blind to these other things. And for me, well, I, I don't know, my, my own weakness and, and didn't see these things in the counseling and couldn't warn her about this. Well, sometimes it appears we may fall in love with the wrong people. And that's what has happened here in the feeding of the 5,000. And you're thinking, falling in love with the wrong person? What do you mean, Rand? This is the feeding of the 5,000. Well, these people who are here at the feeding of the 5,000, most of them have fallen in love with the wrong Jesus. They have fallen in love with a Jesus that they have created in their own minds, and they do not understand all of what Jesus is about. And they have fallen in love only with a portion of him. Now, I will confess to you that every once in a while I turn the television to a specific channel, and hopefully I get to see this one preacher on TV. Now, he looks like a million bucks, okay? And he tells you right off the bat that he is not here to teach you anything from Scripture other than that the Lord has a financial blessing for you. And if you do, that's all he teaches. And, and I want to tell you, he's got, look, I've got my hanky. This is a more of a southern, you know, if you find a lady in distress who needs a hanky, you pull that one out, right? Well, he's got the silk one that matches his tie, and he's got all his teeth and all his hair, and he looks at the camera in all sincerity and conviction and tells you the five or six things or principles that you need to believe from Scripture to receive the financial blessing from our Lord. And, of course, one of them is to sow your seed of $1,000 and write the check to him. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> you think that's going to fly here? If I tell you to write the check to me, you can... No, I didn't think so. It's going to fly. But he says, if you do that, you will receive a blessing from the Lord. And, and I, you know, I have great theological problems with this. There, are, there is evidence that the Lord blesses us. That's very clear. Yes, there is the, the evidence that the Lord guides and protects us. But there is no one-to-one -one ratio, or in the way that he tells it, one-to-a-hundred ratio, that if you send a dollar for the work of the Lord, you will receive a hundred dollars in return. Or if you send a thousand dollars, you will receive a hundred thousand dollars in return starting with the check to him, of course, okay? Now, but if that's true, think about that. Who would not love that God, okay? Who would not fall in love with that Jesus? Send him a hundred and get a hundredfold in return, okay? Send him a thousand, get a hundred thousand in return. I mean, that's a God that I can love. How about you, huh? Okay, let's fish around in our pockets and find out what we can give to the Lord and return a hundredfold blessing. Who wouldn't be in love with that type of God? Well, that's what we have here in John chapter 6, as Jesus has just finished in the previous chapters and in his previous geographical wanderings over here around the Sea of Galilee. He has been doing some great miracles, and the crowd is following him. In fact, Here's the Sea of, of Galilee here. He's over here. And what happens is he takes a boat across. And the people are so enthralled with his miracles and so enthralled with what he's been doing, they run around the, the sea to get to the other side to be there when he arrives. Okay? Because they are hooked on his miracles. Look at verse 2. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. 
They had fallen in love with the healing Jesus. I mean, who doesn't love a good healing or a good exorcism? Okay, this is, this is really cool. Look, the guy had a withered leg. Jesus has healed it. The guy couldn't see. Jesus has given him sight. He couldn't hear. There's, a, there's a, a, an individual who is full of demons, and Jesus cast them out. I mean, that is great, and these people are hooked on it. They are hooked on what they think Jesus is about, healing and delivering and asking nothing of them. Now, if I can find somebody who's healing or who's casting out demons or who is feeding us for free, I'm going to get all my friends and we're going to go down and we're going to see him. And we're going to follow him as long as he is feeding us. As long as he is healing, we're on his team. I'm in love with this guy. They loved his miracles. But when they listened to his words, they wanted to kill him. Remember that. The multitudes loved his miracles. But when they sat down and listened to him, then his disciples began to leave. All those people who followed him, all the people that they thought, this is, this is great, I'm in love with this guy. And then he talks about the fact that he has to set his face towards Jerusalem, that he goes to die, that he calls us to lay down our lives, that we must live for him, that we must die to self. I can only take so much of that, okay? Now, feed me, do some miracles, don't ask anything of me, I'm in love with you. But turn and begin to demand something of me, that my life should change, that I should get out of my comfort zone, then I'm not so enthralled with this individual. And that's what has happened. Now, of all the miracles listed in, in the four Gospels, this is the only miracle that is listed in all four, in all four Gospels. So we see that this has some something special in the sense that the penultimate miracle is the feeding of the 5,000 because it's listed in all the Gospels. And John doesn't usually list other things uh, the same as, as the other three Gospels. He kind of does his own thing. Um, but we see he includes this one because it has, uh, I think, some very particular and important uh, ramifications here. One is that most miracles are miracles that take an arm and heal it, okay, or take eyes and return sight to them, uh, or take someone who is possessed and expels the demon from them. This is a miracle of creation, much like the time when Jesus created the wine at the wedding of Cana, okay, and it's interesting that the creation miracles are wine and bread, okay, so he takes these five barley loaves, and barley loaves were loaves for the poor, Okay, the poor ate barley. It's a, it's a rougher grain. It's, it's, a, uh, it's not the, we don't get the fine texture out of the barley grain that we get out of the wheat grain. Well, this young boy has these five loaves. And basically, they were much, not much more than, than silver dollar pancakes. That's what the loaf was. Not some big, you know, Italian loaf of bread or something like that. But these little loaves and these fish were kind of famous from the Sea of Galilee. Little fish. Uh, almost like sardines, that they would gather up in the nets, and then they were more mashed in a paste. Uh, it's not like the, the, the uh, uh, you know, big old bass or something that we would catch and, and, and cook that way, uh, just little fish. And they would mash them up and put them on the loaves to make them a little bit more palatable or digestible uh, so they weren't so rough, almost like a, uh, uh, some sort of spread that you would put on the loaves. 
So he has these loaves and he has these fish. And you'll notice that uh, if you turn over to uh, verse 12, and when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five loaves. They don't even mention fragments of fish. It's just the fragments of the loaves that are gathered up. Now, let let me remind you once again that they loved his miracles, but they killed him for what he said. They killed him because he declared that he was the Son of God. They killed him because no longer was it the free show, no longer was it the miracle worker, now it was the one who demanded things from us. Pick up your cross and follow me. Okay? No greater love has he than one who lays down his life for the other. Your life must change. You must put aside, Randy, Christ must be first in your life. Okay? Now, you might think for a moment that, well, yeah, but, but look at all these people who are following Christ. Look at their, their desire to be with him. They ran around the Sea of Galilee or they got on their own boats and made it across faster than Jesus did, and they were waiting there for him. But they went and they waited for self-centered reasons because they wanted more miracles. They were in love with the miracle worker. They weren't in love with the one who demanded things from them, who said, if you're going to follow me, this is what you have to do. They were in love with a guy who healed them and fed them and didn't demand anything from them. Now, they had seen all these miracles that Jesus had been doing. And and the gospel says there are many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded here. And we see in the other gospels that some of the things that Jesus had just done in that area, he had healed the centurion's servant, the son of the widow of Nain, uh, he he, he had raised uh, the demoniac, he had healed Jairus' daughter, the two blind men he had healed, the woman who touched his garment with the issue of blood he had healed, uh, another demoniac who couldn't speak, all these had been healed in and around the area of Galilee. So his reputation about his ministry and about all these healings was widespread in this area. And they began to think that, you know, this is the guy who heals and the guy who has powers over demons. Maybe this is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. Maybe this is the one that has been promised who's going to deliver us. And their understanding of deliverance was not this this spiritual understanding, but was much more based upon, you know, the Romans are our masters now. And if this Messiah has come, maybe he can overthrow the Romans and we can be the power instead. And that's why Jesus, in in verse 15, Jesus therefore perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this is the type of the Messiah that they wanted, a political Messiah. They didn't want the Messiah that said, you've got to change. You've got to think of others first. You've got to live in this life of compassion that I am demonstrating to you. Now, earlier in the Gospel of John, the second chapter, we see that it says, Many believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. When they saw the signs that he was doing. And then it goes on to say, But Jesus did not reveal himself to them because he knew their hearts. He knew they liked the show. He knew they liked to see what he was doing, but they weren't ready to devote their lives to him. Now, why did Jesus withdraw? Well, as I said, they wanted to make him king. They wanted to raise him up because they loved the wrong Jesus. They had fallen in love with the wrong Jesus. Now, 
I think this is important for our day because we can fall in love with the wrong Jesus. Not just marry the wrong brother or wrong sister, but there are Jesuses that we fall in love with. And I think a lot of it is, is how, where we are in our lives and what we are listening to and how we are being presented the Jesus of the gospel. Some days uh, there are people who fall in love with the, the, the morality Jesus, the one who just, you know, why can't I live my life like he does? It, it, was, it was right, and why can't I behave like he does? Why can't I, I follow the do's and the don'ts that he said? And then there are others who, who are much more, let's say, political, who want a socialist Jesus, who want a capitalist Jesus, who want a cool Jesus or a countercultural Jesus or the blessing Jesus, that all he does is rain these blessings on us and doesn't demand anything from us. But we can't pick and choose the Jesus we fall in love with. It is the Jesus of the gospel. It is the one who gives us blessing. It is the one who demands everything from us. It is also the one that they hated him, so you can expect to be hated too. This is the Jesus that we are called to follow. The Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for sinners. Now, we have to check ourselves and see if our enthusiasm for Jesus is the Jesus that is real or a Jesus that we are creating? Or maybe we are only falling in love with portions of him. I only want to hear this portion of the gospel. Or I only, I only love him in this portion of the gospel. But yet he is presented to us in this broad scope, both of the one who comes with blessing and the one who comes demanding things from those who follow him. So I don't know which Jesus you love, Okay. It's easy to love the one who does the miracles. It's easy to love and follow the one who feeds you and, and blesses you. And, and if you believe the guy on TV, if you give Jesus a dollar, he'll give you a hundred back. Okay? But there are other things that Jesus calls us to do that we have to see if we love those as much as the blessings. Is he the one that comes and brings us blessing? Yes. Is he the one who saves us from our sin? Yes. Is he the one who brings the spirit, who enables us to live as he calls us to? Yes but he does call us to live differently. And you have to love that Jesus just as much as the others. Remember the words of Paul. Paul said to live as Christ, to die as gain. He didn't say to live as Paul. He didn't say to live and be self-centered and it is everything. He said to live as Christ, to live and to seek after the things of Christ, to live as Christ would. That is life. And when I die, will only be gain. I'm not ready to, the, to gain yet. I still want to live for Christ, but I can't. To live is not Randy. And, and we, we have to look at our own lives and say, say, am I living for Randy or am I living for Christ? Okay. Am I ready to follow him even though his words demand much from me? So which Jesus are you in love with today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so many followed Jesus until they began to listen to his words. They liked his miracles, they liked the healing, and they rejoiced. But when they began to hear the demands of the Christian life, not just the blessings of the Christian life, but the demands, then they began to pull back. They began to drop off, and some even hated him because of those words and sought his death. 
Lord, if you've changed our hearts, if you've really come and, and, and removed the due penalty of sin from us, and our hearts are new and they seek after you, we understand this great blessing of salvation, and we are beginning to understand what is demanded of us. And those demands are not done because, oh, well, this is what the Lord expects, we have to do it. Lord, our hearts should be joyful in doing those things, joyful in living for Christ, joyful in putting aside our own desires because we know it is pleasing to you and we are following your will. And in the midst of those things, you do rain the blessings upon our lives. You give us the strength to do the things that you call us to do. We would never be able to achieve them without the presence of your spirit. We would never be able to live as you call us to unless you empowered us to do so. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you today. Look into each of our hearts that we might examine ourselves and be reminded who is the Jesus that we are in love with. We ask this in his name. Amen. Our hymn is 472, Teach Me Your Way, O Lord. Let's stand as we sing 472.